Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting episode of One Shot Wonders with Adam Phillips. I'm very excited, yeah I said it again, because today we have as our guest the great and mighty Scott McLeod. Hooray! <laughs> hey Adam, how you doing? I am so good, I'm glad to talk to you as always, you know, it's been a little while, but you know, Scott and I go way, way back, mm. and yeah, it's true. So we'll just talk a little about what you might know Scott for. For example, the terrific fantasy adventure comic book Zot that launched in 1984 and ran first for 10 color issues and then um, a whole bunch of black and white issues for a total of 36 and yes, some specials in there with the great Matt Fazell. Yeah. Yeah, and Scott also wrote uh, 12 issues of Superman Adventures and a great miniseries called Superman Strength and uh, a couple of other things like that. He's won lots of awards, like the an Eisner, several Harvey Awards. And my favorite, the Russ Manning Award for Most Promising Newcomer. <laughs> well, I worked on the Eisner Award submissions for DC Comics for many years, and I always felt like if we could get somebody that Russ Manning Award, that would be fantastic. I don't know why. I always thought that was the best one. Um, <laughs> and then on the nonfiction side, of course, Scott is super well known for his book, Understanding Comics, The Invisible Art, which originally published in 1993 mm -hmm. and has a couple of sequels, Reinventing Comics and Making Comics. Most recently, you did that big graphic novel, The Sculptor, yep. which is very cool. And you've been a, a pioneer of some really fantastic conceptual things that are comics adjacent, let's say, like the 24-hour comic, the game five-card Nancy. You were one of the creators of the comics creators, Bill of Rights, and a lot of things that have really inspired people to try to understand comics, aside from a book understanding comics, but to try to understand comics as a medium for storytelling and for communication and Scott, you know, you, you do a lot of presentations to various organizations and yeah. companies and things like that, which are really cool. I mean, I was just looking at your website in the last few days, of course, and reminding myself of some of them. And man, I mean, when you're doing a comic for Google Chrome, you know, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. And, and the the presentations I do, too, because I'm, you know, working with visuals in a way they're kind of comics adjacent too, because the, you know, that's yeah. just putting one picture after another and my, my slides, when I do one of these PowerPoint presentations, they'll have hundreds of slides, but very, very few words. All the words are coming out of my mouth and they're synchronized with what's there up on the screen. So the, yeah. so it's still, it's very, to me, it feels like, yeah, I'm still, this is right next to comics. It's just that, that little slight difference that it's uh, juxtaposed in time instead of space. Mm-hmm. See, I, yeah, I have a really weird resume and, you know, like I've been saying my lifelong goal is to be the cartoonist least likely to be confused with any other cartoonist. But I totally okay. failed at that because anytime anyone gets angry at a cartoonist named Scott, people start mixing me up with them. They, they think I'm Scott Adams or whatever. Yeah, that, that does not seem at all likely to me. But OK, if you, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> so today we're here to talk about. The one shot, destroy. Yes, indeed. Which is such a great comic, and it came out originally November tenth, nineteen eighty six. But people are still talking about it because it made such a big impact. Ah, uh -uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a big comic. We've been talking a, a little on this show about a couple of tabloid comics or treasury editions, if you prefer, from the seventies. This is actually a little larger than those. That's a couple of inches bigger in both directions. Oh, now I now I regret that my headphone cord won't reach quite far enough for me to grab Superman versus Muhammad Ali. 
which I know you were uh, talking about, to see if it, I guess it is. I yeah. think it is actually a little, it's a little bigger than that. Yes, I had it in a stack with wow. uh, a Marvel Treasury edition of, of Howard the Duck, which I'll be talking about in my Defenders <laughs> Dialogue podcast soon. I have that one too. Yeah, that's one of the best. But anyway, this was its own unique thing published by Eclipse Comics. And if we can start off with this, what made you want to do this thing to start with? Because it is such a, a, a an unusual beast. Well, I was 26, really 25 when I was working on the thing. And all I had under my belt was these 10 issues of a color comic that, you know, even though Zot came back in black and white just right after that, I kind of failed, right? You know, I launched this series. I did 10 issues. It wasn't selling enough. We canceled it. And so, like, I'm a has-been at 26, right? (laughs) But I had all these dreams, all these ideas of other things I wanted to do. And sort of in between, while I was kind of moving office furniture and wondering what to do with my life, I I had this idea, even though I knew I wanted to bring back Sot, even though I knew I wanted to make a bunch of mini comics and, you know, had other things in mind, I did have this desire to do something big. And a lot of things Mm -hmm. went into it. Uh, one One of them was actually Raw Magazine. Oh yeah, yeah. I know you. You actually, your quick, quick sidebar. Adam was going to School of Visual Arts, and one of his teachers was Art Spiegelman. And we actually had to move the DC offices because I was working in production at the time. We had to move the DC offices across the street during that time, and I got a day and a half that I could take off, and I took it as three consecutive half day afternoons so I could sit in <laughs> on that class. And and Art let me, and you were you know kind and smug, smuggling me in. But I, I just love those giant stories that they were doing in, in Raw Magazine, also a big format magazine. Yeah. One of them was called Theodore Deathhead, which which is the most obscene, crazy, violent, insane comic. I said insane twice because it's that bad. <laughs> Believe it or not, there's actually aspects of Theodore Deathhead in this crazy little avant-garde French anarchist comic mm-hmm kind of crept in a little way to this thing too wow so i like just scale yeah yeah absolutely i I had not made the connection to raw magazine but of course that is a similar scale at least the original iteration of raw was and man i kind of completely forgot theodore deathhead but um i'll have to remember look into that and remind myself a little more uh what it was but you know to me uh destroy is just bursting with ideas of all sorts. Yeah, and the original, of course, as I as I think I mentioned in the back of the book, is the modern classic, Super Boxers, which was <laughs> <laughs> which is sort of magazine format comic by I think Ron Wilson was it? Um Ron, yeah. Which was a yeah, it was just exactly what the title implies. It's like these boxers who battle each other. And people were talking about it as having nothing but senseless violence. And I was like, wow, I want to see a comic that's nothing but senseless violence because that's a kind of rad. You know, I yeah. liked I liked anything that was like what it was full throttle, even if right. even if it was kind of dumb or whatever. But oh, yeah. um, but then I got a copy of Super Boxers and eh, it had plot, it had characters. And I was just like, <laughs> oh, man, screw that. I thought I thought this was going to be nothing but senseless violence. So I was like, oh, I can do that. Right. So. So I went ahead and did a comic that was nothing but that. It's only 32 pages long. It's just the really big pages. <laughs> They're packed with hitting and punching. There's a whole lot of hitting and punching. Exactly. And <laughs> and I thought it's like rock and roll. I mean, like it's kind of it's like the Ramones. This is like 1985. And, you know, it hadn't been that many years since everything kind of exploded in music. And every once in a while, you just wanted just this burst of noise. And, uh, yeah. and also I want to get it out of my system too, because I'd like, I, you know, I, when I was young, I read a lot of superhero comics and I really got a lot out of that kind of testosterone fueled adolescent fantasy. But, but I was, I was getting interested in other things. And so I was kind of purging myself of mm. the desire to see big muscle bound guys beating the crap out of each other because I kind of had other fish to fry. So this is my way of kind of just like this cathartic getting it out of my system thing. Sure. It's like a a love letter and fond farewell. Yeah. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. And 
I mean, it just starts off with a bang. It's like, I love, I, I love so much about this comic, of course, but the first page is just this long shot of the island of Manhattan and one giant word balloon emanating from it that just says, destroy, you know, <laughs> and it just goes from there. It's like screaming, punching, and just two characters, one of whom is on a rampage and the other who, of whom is trying to calm him down and also vaguely apologize for having stolen his girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. And I was actually, so I just reread this, obviously, you know, for the first time in a few years, that last part's not probably obvious, but you know, it has been a few years. Sure. And I was reminded of the fact that like sort of typical of adventure comics and, and action comics and whatever, that it's all dudes. They all have jobs, you know, like all the police and the police chief and the guy in the helicopter and whatever. There's like one woman in the whole bunch because, of course, that's just how things were. Her role is just to be the love interest. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's so funny and so, like, typical of these things. Definitely she is like this this sort of prop, uh, yeah. this romantic prop. And I – you know, I had seen so many characters like this, I, you know, like the classic was there were some issues of Daredevil where it's like, you know, uh, Karen Page is really upset because, yeah. you know, he's not paying enough attention to her. And he's like, but honey, I, I need to go save the world, you know, and then she'll say, but what about my needs? And uh -huh. it's like, it's like, oh, uh, these they just like. Women had no agency. They had no character. They had no, like, all they were was a couple of pages of dragging the hero down before they could escape and go fight villains again. So, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, so I definitely wanted to sort of reproduce that. And there's this key panel where, um, what's her name? Barbara. Barbara. Yeah, where Barbara gets hit by this little tiny rock. And this is an actual panel, and I forgot what it was, like Avengers or something. This little wow. this little rock hits some female character in the forehead and knocks knocks her out. And it's just like, you wouldn't have some guy knocked out by the little tiny rock. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I have my character Cap Captain Maximum say, Good Lord, she's been struck senseless by that pathetically small piece of flying debris. <laughs> And the other guy, what does he say? Just because he's got his hand in it. Yes, yes exactly. Yes. D N. <laughs> How do you do that? How do you do like screaming with your a hand over your mouth? <laughs> I spelled it as D N F R M F. So I was, I mean, there's a lot of great, like over the top kind of grappling in, in pages like this. Oh, yeah. You know, with the, the hand in the face is such a visceral thing that, you know, in a way you've taken that fight choreography to a different degree where people are actually touching each other. Whereas a lot of comics, you know, like we, we kind of goof around about it sometimes on, on Defender's Dialogue, but like Sabi Sema's thing is people standing eight feet apart, swinging their arms and somehow hitting each other. You know, It's like yeah. there's no actual contact, but these guys are really in their faces and you know well do you show do you show before impact or after like Steranko had ideas about like showing things like right before yes. they happened Salbu Sam always tried to like pull back the camera which is an honorable thing to do because you sure. you got you got to draw more stuff right and yeah. so to him I think it was always important to know where all the pieces are right all the chess pieces you, uh -huh. you want to see the whole board and that actually could be kind of fun when you have a really good writer it's it's really cool to see exactly where everybody is. But sure. I was going for the kind of energy you saw in like things like when, when Kirby was drawing that, what is that like the thing versus the Hulk or something in there? Oh, sure. Yeah. Crashing through the floors of this building and all just the joyous energy. I mean, like my favorite villains at that time were the wrecking crew. Who's, yeah. Like their only purpose was to just break. Things. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, they're, they're a lot of fun. You know, each of them has that kind of, I destroy things with a hammer. I destroy things with a wrecking ball. You know, it's just yeah. so silly. It it's was, fantastic. I mean, they're action figures, you know. Yeah, they're action figures. And, like, I had – I don't know why, but when I was a kid, maybe because I was a little OCD or something, I don't know what, 
but I had I had a fascination with like learning the different like like there were these trucks these like toy trucks that I had and like it was important to me that the biggest one was this particular color and then the second biggest was this uh. next color so like I'm the kind of kid if I was a younger generation I would have really been into the fact that the turtles were color coded and each one had its own weapon uh -huh. so yeah the, that thing about the wrecking crew is like you had the wrecker who was the leader he had this this mystic wrecking bar that was like right. Mjolnir. It was like Asgard derived or something. Yeah. Um, and then, and then Thunderball was that his name? Who had a wrecking ball? And yeah. then, and then Pile Driver, who had giant you fists. Really <laughs> yeah. And he would he would just like pun pummel things really quickly. And right. then the last one, I've forgotten his name, but he just like ran into things. Yes, I can't remember his name either. <laughs> Bulldozer. 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 There you go. Yeah. Man. Uh huh, but you know, in here it's just the two guys, of course. And one one of the things I wanted to mention was like you've derived so much impact out of the way the layouts are planned. Mm -hmm. So, like the first couple of pages where it's tall panels that are just two a page, and then in the scene we were talking about earlier, you know, after Barbara gets hit. There's like a two-page spread of like the panels are getting smaller and smaller, and each panel is another punch. So it's just the the building sort of frenetic quality of the of the like the pace, you know. Yeah, it's, it's well, a lot of fun. It was anyway. it was a little bit like in music, you know, yeah. like where where you if you just think of it as music, you're it's it's um the pacing is like it, you're just kind of kind of getting boom boom boom. You know, like drum and bass, you know, like how exciting it is when, when it just kicks up, you know, like doubles the beat or whatever. Right. And and I definitely like the beat. I like the rhythm of it. And and the other thing yeah. is you you both you both assert the rhythm and then you undermine the rhythm by having all this crap blowing out of the panels. And right. like so I would have wreckage and fists and things like that are coming out over the panels at the same time so you're also kind of breaking the fourth wall and that adds noise right that's like distortion that's like mm -hmm. you're 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 adding noise you're adding fuzz to it yeah um, absolutely that gives it a little bit more uh, makes it feel a little less mechanical uh-huh it reminds me of um that long interminable fade out on i want you she's so heavy where it's just like getting more grungy as they keep playing and playing and playing uh, yeah. at the end yeah. of, of abbey road this is also like a, a love letter, not just to superhero comics, but to the city of New York, of course, because mm. you were so specific about the locations and the route of destruction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, did you start it that way? Did you plan it that way to be like, I'm going to take them uptown from Wall Street and move them to, you know, to these locations so I get to draw them? It seems very planned. Oh, absolutely. I had moved I'd moved out of the city because, as you know, I was working in, you know, D.C. production, 82 and 83. Then I moved up 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 the Hudson line to Terrytown, but I could still take the train into New York. And I did often. Hmm. And, yeah, I was absolutely fascinated with New York. I was fascinated by real locations. There's a lot. These are all real locations for the most part. Mm -hmm. And also I was influenced by both Japanese and European comics. And you can see the European comic influence in the way that every panel is an establishing shot, you know, in, in for many of these pages where uh -huh. you take the time to draw the setting every single time because you're world building, right? Yeah. And world building was was huge in, in Bandesine, you know, with, uh, you know, Tintin all the way up to Mobius and all. It was, it's just this very, very important thing is that you always draw the world. And then in Japanese comics, you have that sense of participation with things like subject emotion, like like on uh, page four here, I have the first scene of Captain Maximum. He's running down the street and the whole background is blurred around him, manga style, which at that point was not that common in American comics. Right, yeah. You see that much more now. But to make you feel like you're the moving object rather than you're watching the motion. Mm -hmm. So I'm using both. And there's a lot of like my use of bleeds was very Japanese. You know, my pacing was very Japanese. There are aspect to aspect transitions and things that are kind of Japanese. So it's like I'm I it's kind of this internationalist thing going on. But mm. but that sense of place, yeah, Manhattan loomed 
very, very large in my world. I lived there for a year and a half. I kept visiting it. And yes. when it came time to do destroy, yeah, I was going down to Wall Street. I was mapping things. <laughs> we have this key punch that happens on page uh, six uh -huh. where the Red Basher is his name. He punches Captain Maximum. And, you know, Captain and, and Captain Maximum just keeps going. I mean, like he punches oh. him in a straight line. The guy flies through a Brinks truck, City Hall. <laughs> uh -huh. Is it Gramercy Park? No, Washington Square, the Flatiron Building. And um, I love the guy in the helicopter who's just going, there he goes, another 18 blocks. You know? yeah, <laughs> so yeah. funny. After a while, it's like he's narrating a, a baseball game, you know? Yeah, so, right. right yeah. <laughs> so he goes, yes. He he plows through the uh, front of the Empire State, State Building, the 42nd Street Library branch, and then down uh, into Rockefeller Plaza, which is right next to where I worked at DC Comics. Like, he basically terminates there. There's there's so much love on these two pages, actually. I mean, this, this whole book is so much fun. But I don't know. This two pages, six and seven here, where we just come off of the moment of Captain Maximum trying to talk his buddy, the Red Basher, down. And then as you turn the page, you, of course, were a big proponent of using that page turn. Oh, yeah. Strategically, Red Basher just screams destroy in his face and it like blows back Captain Maximum's hair. And he's all, you know, washed out like a Doonesbury character or something <laughs> for a moment. It's it's really a, a, a funny caricature kind of moment. Uh, and then and then smashing him through the Brinks truck. What's the most important? penetrable thing i could have him <laughs> smash through i got it an armored car so yeah, there's exactly. like money flying around everywhere the cars the trucks destroyed it's it's hilarious i don't know i think it's just so things like the brinks truck panel like with the money flying everywhere i was definitely influenced by uh things like Hergé, who would have there's this one particular panel which i think is one of the greatest comics panels ever uh, made yeah. where <laughs> captain haddock has in a wheelchair and he's like gone down some stairs and like flies into a car and all this stuff in the car just flies out. Or maybe it was uh, calculus. I've forgotten who, but he just, Hergé just patiently draws each and every little object, you know, uh -huh. the hat, the stethoscope, the briefcase, all these things as they're flying out of the car. And because he draws every little piece of it so clearly, the whole the whole image just loads very quickly into your understanding. So you just like have just that instantaneous enjoyment of all that stuff, sure. like flying out of the panel. And that's, that's what I was hoping to do too. There is, is just give you all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, he had a, a bunch of people helping him out that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I've found at least looking at books about Hergé that, you know, it's almost like they workshopped the pages where they, you know, add more. Oh, what if we add this in here? Oh, we could add that up there, you know, until you come come up with a really loaded panel full of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the payoff. Some of those panels felt like, you know, oh, this is the payoff. You're, you're really getting your, yeah. your money's worth here, like when they first see the rocket in Destination Moon. Oh, yeah. Something I remember you doing on Zot, which is that you would find out what page, because this is before you could have, like, things bleeding off the art on any page. It was just on some pages and yeah. you would find out which pages they, they were available on and then, you know, take advantage of that. Um, and yeah. you do that a bunch here. Well, like for instance, the center spread looks like, where's the center spread? Because when you have yeah. a center spread, then you can have a proper spread where, where things, where things are drawn in the right there in the spine. Right. Because otherwise, it's you're just kind of faking it, and if things are off register, you're going to notice it. But oh, yeah. so, so the actual center spread, which is four gigantic panels of that, just punch, punch, punch. And this is very Theodore Deathhead again, uh, <laughs> that, that raw story. I have you know more and more stuff is coming out of the panel, and it's going right into the center of the spread because yes. I know it's a single piece of paper, right? I know that that's that's not going to be cut that's going to be a single piece of paper because it's a 32 page book. And here, here am I, I'm at uh, pages 16 and 17. Yeah. And it, on this spread, you've got like an increasing amount of rubble and things that are flying out, out of the panel along with the characters too. But what's interesting about it is that you actually have the rubble blocking the lettering. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just a funny kind of effect that somehow that, you know, they're they're interacting 
between lettering and, you know. And that's the noise again, because, you know, like I, the thing is, I had this problem that my stuff always felt a little hermetically sealed, right? You know, it always felt Mm -hmm. a little shrink wrapped and overly careful and, and wooden. And one of the things I admired in Kirby was that his stuff never felt that way. It always felt very gestural and visceral and organic and it just it just really felt like it was always about to kind of break apart into its component parts and in many ways destroy gets me halfway there right i did i was never able to get and i i couldn't topple kirby off the top of the hill he was still king of the hill when it came to big violent scenes like this (laughs) but i thought it was healthy to try you know it's like i found out how far i could push myself up mm-hmm. in that direction and it wasn't as far as people like kirby he'll, he'll always be the king of that kind of thing but but again by by giving it my best right i got i got out of my system yes absolutely and i mean as much as you were trying to make a living drawing comics i mean kirby was doing that for decades and an insane number of pages every month it's just uh oh yeah almost ludicrous you know how much he he could uh, turn out. Yeah, he drew, uh, theoretically, or I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I remember a story of, like, Len Wein and Marv Wolfman, I think, had visited Kirby at his house. And, it like, the TV was on or something. He had his lap board there, and he, he talked to these two young guys and, like, drew an entire issue of Thor or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> probably Probably not a whole issue, but, I mean, like, he drew, like, multiple pages. Just sitting yeah. on his lap board while he was chatting and while the TV's gone. Oh yeah, I mean that's one of the amazing things about him um, about Kirby's career. People always wonder, like, well, how how does he do it? It's like he did it by just doing it. You know, he would just sit in that chair and draw. You know, no matter what else was going on in the house for yeah. you know ninety ninety seven hours a day, it was crazy. Yeah, he was a workaholic. So was Tezuka, yeah. my favorite Japanese artist at the time. Oh, gosh, yeah. He did 150,000 pages of comics. Insane. I just read a year or two years ago, maybe, that like 700-page biography of Tezuka that his studio put out. It's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's completely in his style. It doesn't quite have the spark, but it's, it's still very good. I would like to check that out. I did see the um, – I saw the, the little short film. Uh, oh, I don't think I've seen. Him. It's a little sad. He was—he looked like a clearly a—he was a workaholic, and you just see him like making some rice balls and getting right back to work. And his 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 studio assistants, his interns or whatever, his you know this what do you call them? His apprentices, I suppose you might say. Sure. Yeah. They look so tired. They look so, <laughs> so tired. They can't keep up with the boss. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh huh. So this is a lot of destruction, and that's another thing that this sort of plays on and parodies in a way is the ridiculous just amount of destruction that you see in superhero comics and actually even more so in the superhero movies i think that you know Mm -hmm. they can level half of a city and it's just like well let's you know start picking it up yeah somebody had said that that's the superman man i think it was man of steel whatever that recent movie was that that somebody had compared it to destroy just like that just knocking building after building yeah, I mean, I I could do, you know, fun things like, you know, the Red Basher picks up, you know, the spire of the Chrysler building and swats, um, <laughs> swats Captain Maximum with it. And, he, and Captain Maximum flies out to Liberty Island. And then and then next uh-huh. thing you know, Captain Maximum is is hitting him with the Statue of Liberty, you know, that <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. Oh, no, he like he, he jumps back with it, you know, but I but I and uh-huh. I mapped all this stuff. I got to tell you, like earlier when we were talking about the punch that starts in Wall Street and ends in Rockefeller Center, I like pulled out a ruler and I just drew a line, a straight line. <laughs> and and when I when I have Captain Maxwell going through the front of the 42nd Street Library and uh-huh. you know, like the back of I can't the, remember. Yeah, I, I can't remember. But, you know, like all of that stuff is exactly right. That's exactly where he would have come if you drew a straight yeah. line from that particular location to that location. Right. And if you don't believe it, in the inside back cover, you've got the map. With, I do have the map. <laughs> it's, it's so great. You must have been so thrilled to get to that last page where just giant, the end. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Finally, an easy page. 
<laughs> yeah, and a lot. Yeah, that right. Those were those were fun, and also the the inside front cover, which to me really should have been the cover, which is just a giant yes. screaming face. It's so great. Yeah, absolutely. That's the loudest moment, really. Is this the giant it is. screaming and, face? You know, your inking varies depending on what effect you're trying to get. But on that page, it's like super chunky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I think that I think one of the things that would have helped me in those days, if I could go back in time and pat, you know, grab me by the shoulder or whatever, it's just like lines shouldn't connect. I should have, uh-huh. I should have allowed there to be more space where a line tapers off and doesn't fully connect. Just get more air in the compositions because okay. my, I well, they were all closed curves, and I think that that, I think that hurt it a little bit. That's an interesting observation. Yeah, and. That's a hard thing. I mean, that's like the kind of thing I find people who studied animation a lot tend to learn after a while is where to leave shapes open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Comic book artists, especially I think when you're working with a con- not like this comic, but you know, comics that are going to be colored and you're trying to hold that color. People want to, you know, keep the, the shapes closed more. And that's, that's actually one of the things going on here is that you're looking at it's black and white artwork but it's influenced by decades of color comics that I'd grown up looking at. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that holding line that the disciple always wanting to have the holding line, which is funny because it's, wow. you know, they were still, they were pulling out their exacto knives that, you know, the little old ladies in Hoboken with the exacto knives, they were the ones <laughs> cutting the actual friskets or whatever. Yes. So they didn't really need the line to connect. It's not like they had magic wands in Photoshop, but, um, yeah, but, and yet they did. And because of that, the black and white artwork in those days, because this again, this is 1985, and the uh-huh. black and white renaissance, the little black and white boom was just occurring at that point. A lot of the black and white stuff really looked like color comics without the color. Yeah, that's true. And I didn't want that. I didn't want it to feel that way. No, and it, it, I don't think it does. And I think, you know, you've, like I said, you know, there's a variety of approaches to the ink line and the shadows and things like that that give it a, a rich feeling, you know, but yeah, there's an ad. So there's a bunch of stuff on the inside back cover, including a, about a sixth of a page ad for the Eclipse black and white line. <laughs> yeah. Some of which I remember better than others, <laughs> but you know, they had a bunch. So what did the people at Eclipse say, by the way, if I can ask when you said, I want to do a big comic like this. I think they were pretty supportive you know, in those days, it was only a one-off, so why not? Why not give it a try? Oh, and yeah. and there was some energy around, you know, black and white was just starting in the wake of the, uh, I think of the Turtles. I think it was mostly just the Turtles was the mm. reason. And so, you know, eh, who knows? Take a gamble. It's only one book. But most retailers, when they would see me, even many years later, even decades later, retailers would see me and just like, yeah, yeah, that destroy. It was just didn't fit anywhere there was no oh, place to put it yes they they i mean i as everyone listening to this podcast knows, i was at dc comics for many years and it was like every single time you tried something that wasn't a standard size comic retailers would have problems with it because of <laughs> yeah. the difficulty of finding a place for it and i get it you know um we were talking about this on some episode recently how the tabloid sized comics back in the seventies even were hard for newsstand uh, retailers to place. And like where I got them, there was a comic book rack, uh, not a rack, but like a spinner rack. There was a big magazine rack. And that was of course, magazine size publications like Playboy or mad or time or whatever. Yeah. And then they had like um, a shelf across the bottom of the magazine rack where they would put all the other weird stuff that didn't fit like, tabloid comics but also the farmer's almanac i remember being <laughs> yeah. down there just weird little things that's like i don't know where to put this just put it okay put it there fine <laughs> and you you mentioned the fact that it was even bigger than the treasury editions is bigger than superman bigger, versus yeah. muhammad ali so by then they might you know in 1985 they probably had at least come up with something that could fit those things and i'm sure it really bugged them when i came out with a comic that was just like a yeah. centimeter too tall or whatever. It's oh. like, <laughs> God damn I, it. <laughs> I know. I actually, I recently got some treasury sized um, bags 
<laughs> and boards. And I'm like, I haven't checked yet, but I'm not sure this is going to fit. Oh, well. <laughs> and then great price, too. Man, I mean, what would this thing cost if you did it today, I wonder? Yeah, you know, four four ninety five. Right. Wow. I mean, that, that's a good deal. So <laughs> there was also another version of this that came out a year later, I think, or maybe eight months later, something like that, right? The 3D version? Yeah. Yeah, just a little bit later uh, by Ray Zone, Ray 3D Zone, uh, rest in peace, yes. he's no longer with us. Hmm. But he had done a, um, it's normal size, but it's in 3D. Mm-hmm. And he adapted the artwork. He just like, you know, shifted, shifted everything, parallax and uh, filled in the little missing bits uh, expertly and created a, a lovely little artifact uh, of his own. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that one, but you know, it's it's cool that he did it. I think usually a 3D comic is planned to be 3D, but I guess this one lent itself adequately to the task. Or really, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to take something like that wasn't meant to be 3D and and 3Dify it. I suppose it just takes. It's just good old fashioned work, you know. Like he probably yeah, made photo right. stats and and he probably pulled out a heck of a lot of. Um, you know, exacto knives. Because again, 1985, yeah. you know, you could composite with like the absolute top of the line, you know, graphics programs and computers, but like the Mac was a year old yeah, when I was working right. on this thing. So yeah, Ray almost certainly was doing it the old fashioned way and just doing this crazy little jigsaw puzzle where he uh-huh. would move things around and then just shoot two two different versions of every page. And yeah, I mean, when you have things like rubble coming out of the panel, it is kind of, that's made for, it's perfect. That is true. (laughs) But it's also funny how, you know, you do go from a page like that to, you know, a page that's purposely kind of flattened because it's the aftermath of that moment where everything is sort of played for comedy a little more by having everything sort of on the the stage, if you will. You know, it's like flat and distant and kind of silent one of these days maybe I'll, I'll get a hold of one of those and we'll take a look you know i don't i don't have a whole lot of 3d comics floating around but <laughs> yeah there um, were a few they, there was a little spate of them and a lot of them were done by ray um yeah that's right and there he was, was just a, a boom he was a master of that and he was like sort of part of that uh kind of retro sensibility that you yeah. had mike allred still has a little of that energy that you know there are a few artists who were who were known for creating things that felt a little bit like they were throwbacks to the fifties or whatever, because that there were quite a few three D comics in those days. Yes, yeah, that's true. Now, here's my, my a trivia question for you: mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you name the artist who did a three D comic in the fifties and then another one in the eighties? Oh, I actually got copies of both recently, and I'm going to do an episode on them because they're both one shots, of course. Oh man, it sounds like somebody like Russ Heath or something, but I don't know. It's, who, it's the obvious answer. It's Kirby. Oh, well. <laughs> he did Captain 3D in the 50s with Joe Simon and Mort yeah. Meskin and Ditko, I think, worked on it. And then in the 80s, he did that crazy battle for a 3D world or whatever it's called. Oh, um, yeah. Which, you know, was the comic that got him mentioned, but not in a good way, on tonight The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. A great story that Mark Evanier has told, you know. Yeah, because the, the three, if you don't know this, or even if you do, just for people who are hearing this, the 3D glasses on it, that they came with it, rather, say, the king of comics, and Carson saw, saw that, or one of his people saw it and said, I never even heard of this guy. Where's he? Where's he playing? Is he at the Chuckle Hut? What? I mean, who is this oh, guy? Oh, I think I remember this. Yeah. I might have been actually cognizant when that when that oh, really? came out. Yeah, that sounds yeah. familiar. Oh, how uh, annoying! It's so crazy. Yes, especially because Kirby was a fan, like everybody was back then of Carson. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to ask you. There's an ad in the inside back cover for the original pages from this comic. Yeah. And how did they sell? Did they do well for you and you got rid of them all? Yeah. No, I I did sell a a whole bunch. Um, I only have about, what, four or five left. Uh, But I I probably wouldn't sell them for $80 now, which is the price. (laughs) Hopefully not. Yeah. (laughs) That was was back when original art could still be purchased for 
relatively small amounts of money, you know, Although yeah. these were big pages. So, so cool. It's so crazy too, that you had to like write into the PO box and it's like, Oh my God, actually <laughs> come to think of it. Do I met? There it is. Yeah. There's the PO box. Yeah. Um, God, everything was done by mail. It's just such another era. It really is. And it's so crazy when I started. So I left DC earlier this year. And when I started at DC, 26 years before in the fall of 1994, that was the first job I had where I had to use email every day. Yeah. And, you know, I had already had a bunch of jobs at different uh, publishing houses and um, I got to DC and I was like, I have to do what now? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so much changed in 93 because 93 is where that, that it was in the fall of 93 that the first graphical web browser came out in mosaic and yeah. and then 94 we had netscape and you know uh shortly after that uh mark andreessen the the who was running up that and had created mosaic he was on the cover of time magazine and and then everybody just started using the web pretty quickly after that so and email was already being used you know and a lot of people were using aol or you know they were on CompuServe or whatever but when the web came along it's just that was it it's just that was the beginning of the real mainstreaming hmm. of of the web interesting yeah yeah i'm sure there's books that have been written oh heck yeah, yeah. <laughs> i've read um, i probably read a few of them for for my ill-fated middle child reinventing comics back in uh, 2000 <laughs> <laughs> yeah it turns out as much as it's a great thought to explore different ways to deliver comics people mostly just want pieces of paper that they can hold in their hands well i don't know that that's permanent you know i oh. i i took the position back in the 2000s that you know that i saw papers not tied to comics that is but i'm still making comics on paper but a lot of that has to do with the economy now you know on the web still it's still pretty immature Yes, but, but that, all that stuff was like far in the future, you know, in the days of destroy. <laughs> Again, 1985, you know, really the Mac itself had only just been introduced. Oh, yeah. When I graduated college and I was sharing an apartment with Kurt Busick, I should say his full name so people know who I'm talking about. Uh, my parents gave me a Mac Plus as a graduation gift. Wow. Yeah. And, you know. I'm, I'm sure you remember what they were like, but it did not have an internal memory. It's mm -hmm. like everything was on the floppy disk or the mini disk, actually. It was the five five inch floppies, right? Or was no, it the was little, the, no, the it was the three, the, the three, three and a half or yeah. whatever. Yeah, the 800 kilobyte two-sided <laughs> mini disks. Good God. Oh, man. <laughs> Speaking of that, I mean, you can see the text, like that's clearly typeset on the cover and the inside uh, back cover destroy like right. that stuff was i actually set that you know like oh, i really? had to like or oh no i think i sent oh no the author's note i sent off to eclipse to set but i did letra set for the cover like the the warning I was about that yeah the parents beware warning label uh -huh. which is like a cigarette warning label yes. i went and got like uh you know, Letraset, Helvetica, or whatever it was, and yeah. I pressed those things down with one of those little burnishing tools. Burnishing tool. <laughs> yes. Oh my god! Yeah, you know, now that I look at it closely, I can see where like the colon's a little high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah is. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But it's just funny. It's like, yeah, this is handmade. <laughs> Absolutely. And what about the back cover? Um, I mean, but first of all, to me, you know, you were talking about the front, the inside front cover as the ultimate expression of this comic, but I, I could make an argument for the back cover, which is just yeah. an explosion and three giant exclamation points. Yeah, actually, you know, now that you mention it, I think maybe that's the purest expression of what I was going. <laughs> all I really had to do was just make that one image of three gargantuan yellow ex exclamation points with rubble in the background nice. <laughs> and an explosion. So you drew these. Yeah. 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 That was all just drawn yeah. and then uh, colored probably Dennis McFarling probably did the colors. Yeah. Just cause I mean, the, the exclamation points, there's such a precision to them. They look, you know, etched in stone or something They're, Yeah. I think it's maybe just the um, contrast between that and the, the exploding background thing, you know? Well, actually, if you look, if you look closely, like you can see little flaws. It's 
even though they're identical, I really drew each of those individually. And like, that's such a simple thing that we took for granted in those days. It's just like, well, I got to draw this thing three times. And nowadays, if they're going to be identical, you just copy yeah. and paste. Right. And it's such a different universe. It is insane. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, look, yeah, I'm just like you. I remember starting to do design work uh, on Mac in the 90s, right toward the end of my job before I went to DC, where I was at another company. And uh, they just, hey, look, we got some computers. You could start doing things with them. And yeah, it, it changed the world. So it changed. Quick. It changed everything. Yeah. 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 Computer production. Amazing. And for me, it was, I didn't buy my first computer until 94, which was right after Understanding Comics. And I, or when I was working on Understanding Comics, because I wanted to typeset the stuff in the back of the book. And that's when I got my first Mac, one of those, the, the kind that looks like the original Mac. Uh, but by then it had been around for a while. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So what does the future hold, if anything? Probably nothing, but <laughs> for destroy, because we had this discussion briefly over dinner recently and. Do you have any thoughts about it? Oof, that's a big one. I I always used to joke when anyone asked me what's the future of comics, I say you can't you can't ask me that because then what happens is the balloon, the word balloon that I'm forming in my stomach, it can't get out of my esophagus and I I just choke on it. You yeah. can't you can't pull the word balloon out of my mouth because it's too I, have, <laughs> I have to apologize. I said what's the, the future for destroy. Oh, oh, the future for destroy. Sorry, that's easier. Um, <laughs> I do like the idea of bringing it back at some point. Yeah, because that's what I want you to do. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, I've I've been saying for a while that I think the only way you should bring back destroy is if it's bigger. <laughs> it needs to be bigger. Yeah. I think it needs to be about like a, a meter high or something like that. Damn, um, that would be good. Just about the biggest publications I've seen ever, like anywhere, are the Sunday Press books mm -hmm. that, you know, you've probably seen at San Diego. You may, maybe have some. And also some of the original art books from IDW and uh, I think Graffiti does some as well. That yeah. those, those are monsters. <laughs> yeah, the biggest, biggest comics that I, that I have in my library here. Are the uh, like the little Nemo book or the the giant oh, yeah. Kramer's ergot? Um, Although there is the the infamous uh, Whammo comic, which I keep talking about because I eventually want to get a copy. There was a one shot that Whammo, yes, the toy company, put out <laughs> in like 1967, and it's basically like two tabloids. Mm, so it's a wow. double of a tabloid. Supposedly it's not that great or anything, but people are you know it's just it's an oddity. And the only thing people remember it for, other than the size, is the fact that Wally Wood packaged it, I guess. Huh. Well, actually, I, when, when I was living in Manhattan, I believe, I walked past, like, one of those sidewalk displays. And they, mm -hmm. had, they had coloring books that big. They had giant really? coloring books, yeah, that were that, were that, oh, yeah. okay. that format. They were, like, a couple of tabloids. Yeah, you got to remember they're all just pieces of paper, and you know, like just got to fold them, fold them, fold them, and cut them. And if yes. you just fold them one few, you know, one fewer yeah. step, you have a bigger, you have a bigger thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's an absolutely great sight gag because that's all they were in a Buster Keaton movie. I cannot remember which one where he sits on a bench and opens a newspaper, and he keeps opening it and opening and opening it, and it's clearly, you know, just a single sheet. <laughs> That they didn't cut, but it's just a gag, you know, but it's so funny because it's like struggling with it. It's a windy day. It's getting out of hand, you know, anyway, it's great. But that stuff, that stuff really holds up. It's fascinating to see like which things from like decades or even a century ago still hold up today. Buster Keaton's definitely among those. Oh gosh. Yes. So anyway, well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Scott. Um, Ditto. What, what, if I may ask, can you say that you're in in the process of working on now? Is there anything you can tell us? I got a top secret thing that I can't talk about, but um, I am working also on a, and have been for a while, a giant book about visual communications. Fantastic. And, but it is a little too giant, and I'm trying to cut it by about 150 pages because I don't want to spend the rest of my life drawing it, and I think it will be, I think it will be a better book if it's a little bit, if it's a little bit shorter than it is right now. 
Well, there is that, but it also sounds like, you know, at 150 pages, you've got another book there. Maybe it's uh, more than one book. Or maybe an online addendum or something. But I'd, I'd oh, like to try to, I'd like to get it down to like more like 400 pages. I think that's long. Oh, jeez. <laughs> okay, that, that's a bunch of pages. Fair enough. Uh, well, whatever it is, I am going to, I will certainly look forward to it. And um, I know people out there will be excited to see when it comes to pass. So, um, yeah. Oh, and, you know, I hope, um, I don't know who who the publisher might end up being, but I hope it ends up being somebody cool, like for a second, because they did your book, The Sculptor. And I remember talking to you about them and you were being cagey because you didn't say, oh, I've got a book coming out with them. <laughs> um, where I, I, I think I was just sort of singing their praises and um, you clearly had, a, we're already well underway with the sculptor and working with them and things, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, in fact, um, and, and the visual communications book is a first second book. Absolutely. Excellent. When I think of first second and all that they've been able to accomplish, you know, since they started, you know, I just think of the, sitting in my big comfy chair here in my studio and talking to Mark Siegel, who was just, he was just calling a few people and just talking about some of the challenges because he was, beginning to form an imprint you know like it was just at the very beginning of that process i think he made he probably made a lot of those calls i think he did his due diligence and talked to a lot of different people but we had a really good talk and i you know i hung up the phone just thinking yeah he's the guy's got some ideas let's let's see what he manages to accomplish and he's accomplished a lot yeah first second has accomplished quite a lot and it's yeah and it's lifetime fantastic well it's a pleasure like i said to talk to you and i appreciate your time thanks yeah. again Thank you very much, Adam. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.